Hello, hello. How's it all going with you then? Are you good? Been enjoying the weather? It's been flipping roasting here in England over the last few weeks. No one really knows what to do with themselves here. It's so hot and that goes for me too. I thought I liked the heat. Turns out I don't really know how to cope with it. My voyage of self-discovery continues apace. Anyway, welcome to the ninth instalment of the Threadwork podcast. I am Ross Kale, and if you're back after the last episode, then good on you. I hope it was of some help to you and or introduced you to some new music you've never heard before. If you're new to Threadwork, as I suspect many of you who are listening to this particular episode will be, then to start with, welcome. It's lovely to have you here. And secondly, perhaps consider giving episode zero a listen first so you know what we're doing here. It's only two and a half minutes long, but you don't have to if you don't want to. You can make your own choices in life. So I'm delighted to finally present this particular episode. It's a bit later in the schedule than was originally planned, but hopefully you'll agree with me that it was worth the wait. It features a conversation with a really old friend of mine, Eden Blackman. I'm not saying that Eden is old, I'm saying that I've known him for a long time, over 20 years now, and when I started planning for Threadwork months back at the time of writing, I always knew I would want to speak to other people about music and their relationship to it. So I pulled a list together of some of the people I would love to talk to, some I knew personally, some I didn't, and I'm trying to convince to speak to me. But Eden was in my top 10 names on the list. And this is simply because the guy loves music, has done since I first got to know him, and he continues to be as much of a fan of music today as he ever was. It's possible that many of you listening will only know of Eden from his television work, but I met him many years ago in my first full-time job back in 97. I was 17 and was working in the mailroom of a music promotion company that Eden was a director of called Music House. It was a great place to work for a 17-year-old music fanatic. I was surrounded by people all older than me that mostly loved music as much as I did and all who had different styles and sounds they were into. It was a highly important and influential place for my musical development, though that's a story for another time. But amongst all of the various people that worked at Music House, Eden stood out for a number of reasons. He was pretty much the coolest person there, always highly fashionable, always out and about meeting people and coming back with ludicrous stories of escapades that sounded made up but simply weren't. But also, for some reason I still don't know today, he had plenty of time for me, despite being the busiest dude on the planet and me being some annoying kid. That meant a lot to me and continues to mean a lot to me today. And while I chose not to go into that during our conversation and run the risk of embarrassing him, I can say it now in the relative safety of this intro. Eden and I met to record for Threadwork at his West London home in mid-May 2018 on a beautiful spring morning and despite not having seen each other in the flesh for about 12 years or so, maybe longer, he hadn't changed in the slightest and was still as effusive and excitable as ever. We chatted for so long and covered so much ground that there was some gold that just didn't make it into this episode and so I'll be releasing the whole unedited conversation next week as a bonus. For those of you that are interested in Eden's career in the music industry, it's a must-listen Though you'll have to also listen to me fail to ask an articulate question throughout. I am learning. Okay, a bit of admin before we get into it. Please check the episode notes of Threadwork for links to the records played, if I can find them, and consider making a purchase or two if you enjoy what you hear. I always try to source links that directly benefit the artists or labels responsible, and I fully get it if you can't afford to, but please consider it anyway. There's a bit of swearing in this episode, a couple of F-bombs here and there, but not too many. And if you feel you would like to, please consider subscribing to, rating and reviewing Threadwork on iTunes. Five stars would do nicely, thanks. But also perhaps share the podcast on your social media with other people that you know. 
Whether it's on iTunes, Acast, Mixcloud or direct from the website, it's all good with me and it'd be lovely to grow the listenership if possible. All right then, I'll be back briefly at the end, but until then I hope you enjoy instalment nine of Threadwork with the one and only Eden Blackman. Cheers. Right then, so when did you first become aware of music? Um, I probably became aware of music when I was about, I'd probably say six or seven, um, living in Wales and mum and dad. Um, mum and dad were both music fans. I mean, my mum's Welsh, so it kind of you have to like music if you're Welsh. Which is probably why I like it. Um, and my dad's a, a complete Elvis nut. Um, yeah, I, I like a just not obsessive, not like, you know, I've been on certain artists, um, but, but just loves him and it's his sort of probably go-to artist. So were you listening to Elvis a lot? Was that always so, Yeah, I think, I remember mum used to sing a lot while doing the hoovering. That's oh, got a memory of, I remember. And, and used to play sort of, you know, we're Welsh, so we listened to Shirley Bassey and Tom Jones and that was it. Um, and then my dad used to play a lot of Elvis, yeah, and there was, a, there was kind of always an Elvis record. I want to say there was always, I mean, I listened to music all the time, you know, on all the time, but it wasn't like that, but it was like, you know, on a Sunday, my dad would put, maybe put an album on in the afternoon and then play something else. And they both, mum and dad both liked Elvis, so I suppose it was an easy way to, for them to both to listen to music alike. It's, you know, there's nothing worse than sort of, I think if you're going or you're married or you're going out with someone and you put an album on there, they're a bit, they're a bit oof, and vice versa, because it's a sharing experience, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I, th- I suppose I was just part, I, it was just part of a family thing, right? You know, it was kind of like they put an album on and you just listen to it and then you suppose you start to form, I don't know, I guess you, sp- I, I, I didn't, I never really liked, never really appreciated that I kind of liked certain Elvis records over others until, you know, decades later, really, I suppose, right. when I sort of, because I think the music and it's, you know, it's probably something I'll have when I have kids and I'll probably batter them for saying it but you know you don't really want to like the music your parents like because mm-hmm. you want to be when you're growing up you know from sort of you know up to the informative years you're trying to be everything that they're not and then what you end up doing is fighting that for years mm-hmm. and then doing becoming what they are and being really happy yeah. that's what I've learned as a you know 50 year old man yeah. um being normal is awesome you know I've tried for decades not to be and 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 probably didn't shouldn't have made it where I am now but in terms of being on the planet but um but but it was kind of like you you didn't really kind of you know wasn't you didn't want to like what your parents liked you know that was that was kind of why I suppose rock and roll came along and punk and all the movements we've had um I remember one particular thing that really and it's funny I just just triggered in my mind saying that I remember watching live as a kid as a 10 year old in Stansted the Bill Grundy Sex Pistols um, interview. Okay. You dirty son. You dirty old man. Well, keep going, Chief. Keep going. Go on, you've got another five you seconds. Dirt, Say something outrageous. You dirty bastard. Go on, again. You dirty fucker. What a, what a fucking rotter. Well, that's it for tonight. And I remember seeing that, and I remember to this day, and it was 40 years ago, but being really... <gasps> You know, Jesus. You can swear. Yeah, okay, I was like, fuck, you know, um, wow, it was really I know it sounds nothing now, but you know, in nineteen seventy seven it was it was to see that happen on, on, on Tea Time T V with you you know, with everyone's housewife's favourite Bill Grundy was a real moment. Yeah. And I remember that really turning me maybe into alternative music. 
because I didn't really, unless I was 10 living in Stansted, I'm not, I'm not going to the 100 Club or hanging out in King's Road. You know, uh, I, but you, I, those, those, those moments have to come. Yeah. They have I, to come somewhere. Yeah, and it, that really turned me on to music that probably wasn't on the radio. Yes. You know, Radio 1, Daytime, and as uh, those are the kind of records that you like. But it was, you know, Jesus, what, you know, who are they? And I kind of started sort of in a very amateur way, sort of trying to seek out some punk records and, and kind of hearing stuff on that and hearing that it was, you could just play in a band, even if you couldn't play the, couldn't play the instrument like them. And Sid Vicious made a very short career of it. Mm. Um, and I suppose that was a pivotal moment thinking about it, that, that I suppose that was when it, I suppose my ears, I suppose my ears then started to filter and notice the difference between records. You know, it's the difference between, I don't know, uh, an ABBA record and a, and a yeah. kind of Ruts record or something. And that was quite a pivotal moment thinking about it. Um, so did you, so, so, so that's a 10. Yeah. Right? So you've heard that, you've suddenly discovered the Sex Pistols and what have you. Yeah. Was there an immediate kind of pushback against Elvis and everything from yeah. that moment? Yeah, I mean, it was kind of like... Is 10 still young for yeah. to suddenly go, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm a punk now. So. Well, I didn't realise, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I didn't realise that I wasn't anti-Elvis or I wasn't anti any of those artists. I just suppose my ears hadn't been woken up to the differences. I think it's sort of, it's a bit like eating. If you eat, you know, if you've got a fairly conservative palate and, you know, you're happy and totally happy with eating certain foods. And then if somebody takes you into this incredible, like, Italian restaurant or French restaurant or Mexican restaurant or, or Thai, the first time you have Thai and Chinese, you're like, so what is this? Yeah, and then you get an idea of, well, okay, listen, pie and chips is awesome. And, you know, eggs, ham and, you know, chips is fantastic. But geez, you know, a pad thai, you say? Yeah. You know, it's kind of like, you know, it's like, whoa, where did noodles? Yeah. You know, so it's. I suppose it's the sort of learning. It's, it's all about taste when you think about it, whether it's in your ears or in your mouth or or whatever it is. It's kind of like I suppose I just started to develop tastes of of music. I had a mate of mine that I went to school with, who, who we're still friends on Facebook, which is lovely, and he had an older brother, and we were twelve, possibly thirteen. And his older brother was probably 15, 16, but his older brother had the record collection. And we used to go around to his house when his mum and dad weren't there after school, that hour and a half, 90 minutes of like, kind of like when you're finding out who you are. And he put on, on vinyl obviously, the second side of ACDC, if you want blood, you've got it. First track, Whole Lot of Roses. Never heard since this <laughs> <laughs> since this day. I mean, I've been to a lot of concerts. I've probably lost half my hearing, but I've never heard a, a, a record as loud. And I just stood there, and and life changed. It genuinely did. It was like fucking hell. I Jesus. I it's mean, it's hard to underestimate just how important moments like that yeah. are. Yeah, that moment where everything just stops. I've, I've never heard, I'd never heard a record like it. 
and I've heard a million, a billion records, and, and, and I've heard better and worse records. And, but, but every time I hear that, I've got the vinyl copy, and I'm, you know, I'm, you know, I've kept all my vinyl, I've kept all my CDs, which is another conversation. But putting, putting that vinyl on, I, I know exactly where the clips are. And then the audience, the live record, you don't know, but you, the audience come in and then it's da na 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 Angus! And you're like, Gee! and then it goes on for about four minutes. There's a mental blistering guitar solo from Angus Young, which has no relevance to the actual studio version, but it's now the version of everyone. If you ask somebody to, you know, to kind of air guitar a whole lot of reasons, they'll do the live version and not the studio version, which is out on Let There Be Rock, I think. Um, and it just changed my mind. It was just, I was like, Jesus Christ, what's this? And it was similar to saying, have you tried Mexican food? No, let's try it all because this is amazing. It was a moment kind of like, of just like, what else is there? It was a real urge and a real desire and a real, it was like a primeval thing. And I'm probably gonna sound like a prick for saying that, but it was like, what more, more, yeah, more. It was like, what more? I needed to be fed. I needed to, you know, is, do, do they do other stuff? Is there other tracks? Like, is, there's albums of it. Oh my God, you know, it's kind of like, a real moment. So was that? Did that embark you on a kind of heavy rock, hard yeah. rock kind of jaunt? Mm. Which has stayed to me today. I, I still. I mean, if you, if I were a genre of music, it would be, it would be heavy rock, heavy metal. I always hated the phrase heavy metal because I thought it was. <laughs> I thought it was really stupid, and obviously when they used it, when Vivian used it, it uh, had it written very metal on his on his <laughs> denim jacket. In the young ones, I was like, it really is one of the most stupidest genres, but I love it. And I think it was just, I suppose, in a way, I suppose you, Elvis, you know, like John Lennon said it, before Elvis there was nothing. And Elvis made rock and roll. And then every band has, irrelevant who they are, they have, they have a bloodline through to Elvis. And, and I suppose what ACDC did, were they were, they were essentially a kind of rock blues band on the first mm -hmm. couple of albums. And then they just went, hang on, our amps can go up to 11. Yeah. Let's see what we can do. And they were the first proper band I ever went to see, the first band I ever went to see was a, guy called, a band called Diamond Head and I saw them because I've got a thing for dates 12th of May 1982 um, Where was that? That was at the Cambridge Sea Cadet Hall Okay But right. the first band I first band uh, proper band I went to was ACDC on the 18th of October 1982 it was a Tuesday and Y&T Sporty and it was at Wembley Arena which is about four miles away from where I'm sitting and I stood there for the whole show and with my mouth open because mm. I was just like and ACDC aren't a they're not like with respect they're not like Robbie Williams or like or like Kiss they don't put on a show show they just play there's very little chat between the audience there's very little chat between Brian Johnson about you know everything alright how we doing none of that like you know try the fish I'm here all week none of those conversations they just track 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 Hearing that record sometime in 1980, that was all I cared. That was all I wanted to know was about rock music, and that went from, I mean, you know, the Friday Rock Show was a thing, uh, which beautifully started at 10 o'clock on a Friday, which is where my Soho radio show started. So things like I was kind of it's a beautiful little thing. Um, so that was Radio One. Tommy Vance um, was no longer with us, sadly. Um, he had the Friday Rock Show, and it was three hours of rock music that you had no 
possible way of hearing anywhere else. It was, you know, this was, you know, and I'm, I'm talking about the millennium thing. There was no Spotify. There was no, um, there was no internet. There was no ripping records for free. You had to buy records or borrow them from your mates and and record them illegally. Do you think enough, uh, so, so, uh, yeah. Of course, people of our generation um, haven't been very keenly aware of that. But do you think that's something? I mean, this isn't a kind of old blah blah blah. Yeah, yeah. You said today. Is, yeah, you today. Really <laughs> no, but the point about that is it, it's hard to underestimate the importance. The fact that there wasn't immediacy, mm. there wasn't immediacy of access mm. to all this information, you mm. had to go and search. Yeah. Or you had to be really lucky and have a mate yeah. who had an older brother yeah. or something along those lines. And that, those kind of you know, serendipitous uh, chain of events. Mm. Yeah, it is because you were, it wasn't a case that you were spoon fed them on a Friday, but if it, on Spotify and called you know a thing called New Music Friday, it, it, you had to go and find them, or you had to. Um, I mean, there was there was a couple of music magazines I used to buy, or music papers. Um, there was Melody Maker and NME, which I really sound old now, none of them were around. But there was one called Sounds, and Melody Maker was the more of a kind of punky, I suppose, they used to write more punk alternative. NME was, you, you could kind of what you, what would be known as indie music now, but they're kind of that real kind of the buzzcocks in kind of the moment. And then Sounds was a rock magazine, a rock paper, and I would just consume it. I would get it and read it from page to page. And then Kerrang! came along, or to give it its problem, Kerrang! which is why it's called that. Um, uh, that came along, and that was if you're if you're a fan of any any football team or any artist, any any anyone, if they had a magazine that was just full of that, you would go, oh my days! And I again consumed it. I used to just read it from cover to cover, and there'd be reviews and there'd be stuff like that, and it would just be because it was heavy metal or hard rock. There were only a few kids at school that liked it, so it wasn't like there were huge communities of people you could jump online and go, "Hey, what's the new? I don't know, what's the new Pixies record like?" And I go, you know, John from Charleston would go, "Well, I don't think it's as good as la la la." You know, it was just a case of like, do you know what? Has anyone got it? Shit, no one's got it. I need to get it. Yeah. And I tell this story, and it's, it's, it's absolutely true. And again, it's going to make me sound really old, but I am. I used to, when I was at school, I used to have a paper round. And I used to get £2.50 a week. I used to work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, after school, delivering about 70 papers around Cambridge. And I get £2.50 a week. It beggars belief how much, you know, what that is worth now. But anyway, so every week I'd get £2.50 in cash in a little brown envelope. And uh, which is a theme that's continued to this day. Um, but uh, every two weeks, um, I would get, I would have £5. And £5 was enough to go to Andy's Records in Cambridge and buy an album. So for two weeks, I would put an enormous amount of pressure and although I didn't know the name, the name of the word at the time, anxiety on myself to go, right, I've got one shot, I can buy one record. And if I get it wrong, th uh, that's it for two weeks. Yeah, I can't nice. buy another one. If I buy the Duff album and put it on one, no. Because you really couldn't take vinyl back then. No. It wasn't a thing. It wasn't, it wasn't as cool as like, you get a CD and I like it, take it back. Yeah, sure, rough trade, yeah, whatever. You just couldn't do it. So you like, and I used to buy an album every two weeks and it would be it would be like the crown jewels. I'd take it home and I'd be really careful putting it on and putting the needle on and you know and just hope that I bought the right one because you couldn't stream it. You couldn't hear it anywhere else. It was it was like going to see a film 
with no knowledge. Yeah, you can, you can't you can't say I don't like that one. Yeah. Can I please have two hours? Mm. No, it doesn't exist. Did you so, ever? So when you went into Andy's, just just a, yeah. just a quick one on, on, in Andy's. Whenever you went in there, would you ever? Was there anything playing that you'd be like? What's, what's this? No, because uh, because I was um, thirteen or fourteen, my my ears were closed, okay. and at that age, or certainly at that time, you the idea of liking other music, you felt that you were it was like sport supporting another team. It was kind of like you can't you can't like that Eden. You know, you're a rock fan. You can't like Japan. Or you can't like Kraftwerk, or you can't like whoever that is, because they're not rock. And you, it was, it was a weird. Not that I've ever done it, but it was a kind of like coming out. I suppose you were yeah, like, Jesus, yeah. I've got these feelings for a Duran Duran record. What am I? How am I ever going to live with myself? It's so and, true. You know, it's kind of things like that. Were so no, I didn't. It's something I do now, and I've discovered a lot of amazing bands by just going down to Rough Trade and Port by the Road and just wandering around and hearing stuff. But I never really took myself out of the heavy rock scene. Um, and I went to see all the bands and my dad and my mum and dad were amazing. The, my dad used to, so I lived in Cambridge and there used to be the Ipswich Gomon. And used to get bands, they were the nearest place that people, the, the bands would come to. Because Cambridge at that point didn't have the Corn Exchange, it had closed down, it hadn't, been, it hadn't been reopened. So there was no live scene. So my dad used to drive me either up to Ipswich or down to, to London to see a gig. And I was thinking about this the other day. I bought some. I just bought some um, Father John Misty tickets on an app. Um, I mean, I love Father John Misty. Oh, so but they've just released the tickets for this this tour he's doing in October. Not doing the London show, so we're going to go down and see, see him in Portsmouth. Anyway, I bought these things on an app. Put, got downloaded the app. Bought the tickets. Bang. And it suddenly brought my mind back to when I was sort of 13 and, and like Kiss or As Yours Born and Motorhead or Iron Maiden would put a show on in Ipswich Goma. And I would have to write a letter. I mean, this is going to blow your mind if you're under 30. Bl- write a letter so asking, please, could I purchase two tickets for Iron Maiden on the September to so-and-so, you know, in 1982. And have my dad write a cheque that I would give him then my pocket money to pay for the tickets and then send it off and wait and then get the tickets back. And I used to always, yeah. And I used to always put on it. Please, can you get me the closest tickets, closest to the stage? I never thought there's the, the, the logistics aspects. I'm, I'm very lucky. I'm from London originally. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Geographically, it was impossible for me to get to Ipswich or London to buy a ticket. So I used to have to write a letter. And I was thinking about this the other day. Just you know, I, did, I was in the you know, I was in my bathroom. Ping. Text from an app called Dice. Father John Misty tickets have just gone on sale. So I open my phone. I click the app, and in about three seconds, I've got a pair of tickets for Father John Misty. And I'm like. I talk about the 14 year old even quite a lot and the 14 year old even would, that would have blown his mind that you could do this so so then I used to sort of go to sort of gigs and stuff like that and, and, and you know dad used to come out and go and wait in a pub for me and my mates and Guy used to be one of them and we used to see a bunch of bands and that was when I really went this is what I, this is what I want to look at and then outside of that I started then I talk about sort of coming out but um, but but in terms of I then started to go hear bands like Japan that I got really into and was like it, I like it. It's not anything like Quiet Riot, mm. but it's I like it. And then I started getting into kind of the, I got in Duran quite a bit. I got into kind of um, Japan usually. I think I was sort of in love with how fucking cool they looked for a start. 
Um, Where did you first come across? I can't remember. I think it was somebody at school uh, was a fan, and they lent me maybe Night Porter album, or, or, or maybe even it wasn't all on canvas because I because I liked them before they kind of were juice splitting up. Um, but it was after they'd gone from the kind of alternative sound into the kind of you know I suppose they you know that kind of. They, they were classed as new romantic I'm not exactly sure what they were called but but that kind of nice stuff and I still I'm still a fan of them today I still listen to David Sylvian quite a bit I've always wanted to meet him I wouldn't know what the hell to say to him but um, then I started then in terms of my ears started being a bit more open and I remember at school you were either a punk a skinhead a rock fan or a new romantic and never did they twain me you know it was kind of like you weren't you couldn't be you couldn't kind of like ACDC and the specials. Yes. I've always been fascinated by by that uh, segregation of, of scenes and what have you. It's a clan. It is I think it's clans, I do. Do you think it's Yeah, I don't think it's gangs, I think it's a clan. I think it's a, you look for something to sort of associate yourself. You're, like you're trying to find out who you are. And you are, then you kind of become one of that clan. Was there anyone who danced between the, the, the clans? The, the yeah, I mean, joints? definitely definitely coming in, at sort of before I left school, um, it was, you know, I kind of moved into that new romantic scene, I suppose, and a, a big Duran and, and Japan fans. And then after... Did you come in one day, like, like in Sing Street? Well, it's, it's funny you say that, actually, because it's a true story. So um, when I was, you know, when I was in that kind of my heavy metal phone, I decided that I wanted to have long hair, which is something I've always wanted to have, and I've never managed to do it. I've always wanted to look like... <laughs> I've always wanted to look like David Coverdale, sort of Circus 1987, with his long, flowing, blonde, highlighted hair, but it's, it's something I never merged to pull together. So um, there was a moment there when I then changed... I mean, I still wore all the rock t-shirts, but then I suppose that's when my fashion thing came in. I started like, because all I'd done is, is worn jeans and trainers and whatever rock t-shirt I had or bought from a gig or bought from, you know, one of the stores in Cambridge. So that's all I did. In fact, my mum and dad, uh, my mum, uh, again, will verify this. She used to hang all my rock t-shirts out on the line inside out. because. <laughs> Because she figured that they were so graphic and ugly. <laughs> I mean, you've got an Iron Maiden cover in like 1982. That's you know, true. You know, they weren't no, particularly, yeah, you know, yeah. pleasant things to look that's at. True, yeah. And the Motorhead crest is amazing, but it's not the kind of thing that my mum does. So my mum used to hang out my, my, my T-shirts inside out, which was great because what she didn't realise, we know, is that she was actually preserving them because obviously yeah, it was kind of like the sun did invade them. So, uh, you know, paradoxically, it kind of extended the life of them. Um, but I, I, and that's when I started, I think that was when I got my hair cut, it was something like, I started then to listen to different music. Because I, I suppose I turned into a different person. And then I started just liking music. You know, it didn't become that it was like, you know, I'm a vegan, so I don't eat meat. It was like, I'd eat anything, or I'd consume yes. anything. It was like, that sounds good. And I had a lot of time to make up for, because I think a lot of people, had made that decision a couple of years before me. Um, I mean, some haven't still, still are still doing that today, you know. But in terms of kind of getting an eye, an, an ear for music, I then started liking tons of stuff. To thinking about the um, the new romantic stuff, so so discovering it is one thing, but can you because it is so very different, and maybe that's all it is. Mm. Was there anything in the sound? What was it that that drew you to it? 
I suppose a lot of it was so beautiful in its construction and so intense in the way it had been put together. I mean, this is a period where like studio conceptions were really big. And synthesizers, in terms of that new romantic thing, with like something you know, you press a button and go, wow, you couldn't do that before. So I suppose it was new sounds. And I think, and not taking anything away from heavy rock and roll because it's still my my go-to kind of genre. It, 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 it is it is a, a similar beast in terms of the way it's put up. It's sped up, it's slowed down, it's double drum, it's finger tap guitars, whatever it be. But it is of a certain sound. And then when you start hearing kind of like Mick Khan bass, up, well, the way Mick Khan played the bass, when you had a fret of bass and he was incredible. And then the kind of synths and the keyboards and stuff like that. It wasn't sounds I'd heard because a bass guitarist in a rock band isn't isn't the first you know I don't know any bass guitarist in rock band other than probably Geddy Lee from Rush that you go oh my god what an incredible bassist that rock band has there's very few of them I, I, Where, I like to stick up with the bassist that's, that's yeah that's my but my point is, is that it was like, then that sort of became a sort of you know his sound in Japan was probably the sound I mean David Sylvian wasn't the greatest of singers he was very influenced by certainly by Brian Ferry um, and he was very kind of like, you know, he sang was very super cool. Um, I always imagine going home and him being from Bradford and going, bloody great gig that, you know, I really enjoyed it. And he'd have this amazing, but he'd gone this incredible sultry voice when he was on mic, a bit like David Coverdale, who pretends to be from, you know, a, a beautiful part of Sussex and he's from Redcar in Newcastle and completely changed his accent. But I kind of think the way that, 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 that Mick Khan played the bass, it kind of, it was an instrument I'd never listened to because it wasn't at the, it wasn't, it wasn't what you concentrated on when you listened to oh, Lemmy, obviously Lemmy, you know the basses, but it wasn't really kind of where you focused on listening to a rock record, it was about the vocals and the guitar solo mostly. So I think it was just something different, I was like, Jesus, you know, you listen to the bass solo in like Visions of China, uh, and it's all over the place, I mean he plays a fretless bass, so it, it's, it's like, um, all over the place. It's, it, and you're like, how's he doing that? It took me a while to realise it was a bass because it sounded like a synth that had been, you know, the, where the, the, the pitch had been mixed on it. But it's this guy playing, this Cypriot guy playing bass on this sound that you'd never heard. So I think that kind of opened my ears that it wasn't all about 4 4 and blistering guitar solos and like screams and yelps and stuff like that. Um, and I suppose that was the moment where I started going, okay, it's okay to like any music. girlfriend when I was about 18, 17, 18, a girl called Amanda and she was from Glasgow and very cool and she introduced me to Bowie and Simple Minds and Talking Heads and bands that I'd never been aware of. So that's a real treasure. Big moment. Yeah, I remember, I remember playing, I don't remember what album was, but Bowie for the first time and I was like, whoa, what is this? Again, a different sound. Um, and each Bowie album is different, and it was, you know, even at that point, there was a huge catalogue of records you can get involved in. So I think that was a big moment. She took me to see uh, to Stop Making Sense, the film by Talking uh, Heads, and everyone got up after the first track and danced in cinema in the aisles.
Like amazing. Who is this guy? And Dave Byrne walks on in a suit that's about nine times too big for him, with a with a cassette recorder and presses a beat and starts playing Psychokeller just on him. And if you haven't seen the film, basically he walks on and then through each with with a couple of tracks, another member of the band arrives. So Tina Weymouth will come on bass for two couple of tracks and and extends and it gets to the end where they got a whole band and a choir and like a kind of dancing girls. It's an amazing film and a great soundtrack. So that was Talking Heads were a band that I'd never heard of um, but suddenly was like this is amazing you know, Stop Making Sense was, was, a, was an incredible record um, another thing a really funny moment I remember it's just before, the, before I moved out probably my mum and dad um, so my the landscape of my parents house is that my bedroom was right next to the bathroom and my mum used to get up and I used to get up for work and I used to put a record on and wait for her to get out of the bathroom before I go in and I put on uh, Psycho Killer Stop Making Sense uh, Psycho Killer Talking Heads which you have to appreciate is a really underground record, a really odd record. It's called Psycho Killer. It doesn't get much radio figure. And, um, you know, if you don't know the record, it's like, uh, uh, um, there's a bit in it where Dave Byrne goes, oh, 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 hi, 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 and then goes into the chorus, it goes into the verses. And I've got this thing on, and I'll never forget it. I've got it on, and as that bit comes in, my mum sings that part while in the bathroom, and I'm like, mum! <laughs> How do you know about Talking Heads? Because you play it every morning. And it was it was mental, to, well mental is a bad word, but it was crazy to hear your mum, who you consider to be quite a conservative, singing along to a Talking Heads record. She has no idea what it's about, with respect, she has no idea it's about a psycho killer. But just how music, how people can consume music without even knowing what it's about. And it was also a buzz to hear my mum sing Psycho Killer by Talking Heads. Well, they can go one of two ways, can't you? You're like, oh, yeah, I just Yeah, no, for me, it was like, <laughs> awesome. I'm are. educating, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's so unfair, oh, I hate you. Yeah, exactly, Kevin and Perry. Um, but you know, it was like, wow, okay, cool. So, it's, you know, I'm like, okay, I've educated someone. In, not in an arrogant way, but like, in some of the guy Dan's played me ACDC, then I've then gone and played Psycho Killer to my mum and dad, and like, my mum knows the, a bit of it. So 86, 87, I got my first ever CD player because CDs had just come out. And um, the first CD I think I ever got was Jean-Michel Jarre live because I got really into him. Again, I was dating a girl, her best friend's boyfriend, we used to go around his, his, his bedroom, just hang out. And he used to play Jean-Michel Jarre. Again, never heard anything like it. And it was all these keyboards, you know, a million miles away from, I don't know, Van Halen. Um, and I got really into him. And um, I got one of his CDs. I think I'm pretty sure I got Zero Per, no, Zulup. Oh, I think the album is. I've got it. Um, probably the first CD I ever got. And then Terence Strand Darby's album came out. And um, 
again, living in Cambridge, it come out, this is when you had to wait for CDs to be available in the shops, kids. It wasn't a case of like, you know, you could stream something, you know, as soon as it's out of the studio, because it's Lee, like the Kanye record. Um, and I tried to get this album in Cambridge, and a couple of record shops, and they'd all sold out. So my dad was living, was working in London, and he went into three HMVs and found me a copy and brought it back. And it's funny you should talk about this, because it came up on my iPod shuffle the other day, and I said that this is 31, 31 years old. And it still sounds incredible. Yes. I mean, it's what an amazing record. And I think I then got into here into stuff like that, which again was a million miles away from the stuff I've been listening to maybe five years before. Then I got a job at a record company, which was A&M Records. I was working for a, a, a working in a clothes shop, and I saw uh, an advert in the Cambridge Evening News for A&M Records, and it said, "You know, we're seeking young, dynamic, and I can't remember the third thing was to join our team." And I was like, "Oh my God, a record company! Like this is like amazing!" So I spoke to my dad, and we we, we put a CV together, which was entirely fictitious because it was all bullshit. <laughs> but if I'd have put what I actually did, I had in terms of complications, that are like, "I'm amazing," and managed to put an envelope together, let alone you know, <laughs> get a job. Um, and uh, I went into the interview, and they were interviewing at a hotel in Cambridge, literally in five minute gaps. They were getting, they're getting loads of people and just seeing, they've got a grip and grin. And, and before the guy, I was sat aside, and the guy that came out before I was going to go in for the interview was, was a guy called Marcus, who was the manager of our price in Cambridge. I knew this because I was in there every week. And I went, ah, he's going to get it. You know, so he works in the record company. And I was super relaxed. And I went in and I went, yeah, I'm Eden. And, 20, whatever I was, 21 or 20, maybe 22. And I'm really into my music and blah, blah, blah. And I just talked to them for five minutes or 10 minutes. And I'm like, great, cool, thanks very much. And I came back and went, oh, well, that was interesting. But, you know, I think Mark is going to do it. And I, I kind of dispelled the idea I was going to get a job. About a week later, two weeks later, <clears throat> I got a letter. And I opened it and it was from A&M Records. You know, we should come back for a second interview. And I was like, shit! All on A&M headed paper and stuff like that. And I How knew... Oh, I, well, I, not only that, but it was I read it about four or five times, but I knew all the bands that I owned on vinyl that were on AMRM, because so I, I knew who were on AM. So um, I went in, and it was a long interview, it was an hour and a half, and we just talked about music, and it was for sales reps job. And all I did was talk about music, like we're doing now, you know. And they just sat there and kind of <laughs> listened to me, they didn't really have much choice when I get going. 
And I was just talking about, you know, B-sides that I really liked or kind of producers because I'd, I'd really got into music. And, uh, you know, my education, I didn't, I really didn't like school. There was nothing that excited me. But my education was actually, Lee, was when I left school and got home and started listening to records and studying the artwork and studying the album and the credits and who produced it and where it was recorded and where it was mastered and these people who got thank yous who are these how do you get a thank you on a record you know it was a big thing and that was my education so when i walked into this second interview i just talked about music and i'll always remember i get quite emotional when i say it because it was a it was a real moment and it was september 1989 so i was 22 coming up to 22 i was 20 i was 21 coming up to 22 anyway and we're talking about music, and I feel that these two guys, a guy called Paul Smith, not Lee Paul Smith now, Phil Millington, who worked at AM Records, were sat across the other side of this desk, and they had one of those big, chunky mobile phones. I've never seen one, but the brick, with yeah. the, you know, it's like a huge thing with an aerial, rubber aerial. And I'm like, and, we're, and I feel they're leading up to something, and he's, and Phil Millington, no, Paul Smith's bloody mobile goes, and he's went, I've got to get this. And he went, would you like to go outside? And I went, okay, so I went outside, I'm going, Get an orange juice, calm down. Right, I, I, you know, I don't know. What do you think? You know, I'm talking to myself. And they said, oh, come back in. Sat down and they went, okay, Eden. <clears throat> um, do you want to tell us now? Or do you want to have time to think about it? Um, you know, what do you, you know, what do you want to do? And I, I went, in my head going, I think they're offering me the job, but they haven't actually offered me the job. So don't be arrogant. Yes. And I said, and I remember going, if you're offering me the job, this is where I get really emotional. It's bizarre. He said, if you're offering me the job, I'd love to accept. And Paul Smith got up, leant across the table, put his hand out and said, welcome to AM Records. And I started in September, about two months later, and I'd never done this job before, I walked into a store in um, Leicester, and uh, one of my stores, and these two guys sidled up to me, uh, and their name was Roger Smith and um, John Walsh, and they ran the sales team at EMI Records. And they said, you're Eden, aren't you? And I went, yeah. What have I done? And they were like, John and Roger from EMI, you've got time for a coffee? I was like, yeah, okay. And um, it turns out that they were looking to hire somebody in the EMI records and they'd asked a number of the stores in their area that I called on who was a good rep. And they all said, you've got to meet this lunatic, Eden. He said, who is it? He's this kid, he's a kid, he's 21 from Cambridge. He just talks about music. He just fucking loves it. You know, and they're like, wow, is he good? Yeah, he's good, the girls like him, the guys are, you know, it's kind of like, he's a, he's a good rep, you know, everything you want. So they turned me for a cup of coffee and they said, we're extending EMI Records, would you, um, would you like to come work for us? I was like, EMI, Jesus. And Eden, we can take your salary from 9,000 pounds a year to 12. I was like, three grand more, wow. And it was a big moment. And I was living with my mum and dad and, um, and, I accepted, and funnily, it's a really kind of funny story. I'm a, I was then a bit of a reckless driver, I'm not now. 
but I used to just drive it, and you know, it was either zero or you know, hundred and ten. It was there was no middle ground. It's similar to how I've lived my life, and I crashed a car, one of A and M's records. I I I I jumped a light, coming back from London from a meeting, and hit the back of the car in front of me and took my my lights out. And the police came along and they gave me actually gave me plastic bags to put over my headlights so I could get home. So I called the office the next day, A and M. And the worst thing you can do if you're a sales rep is crash the car because the people that run the car department are, the, they're like the devil. They're like, you don't want to upset them. It's like, oh my God, no. And Why is that? Because it's their, they, you know, they, they supply these cars. They're probably on a huge bonus in terms of how much, how many of them aren't crashed and how many of them they keep in one piece. You know, everything, that, you know, if they give you a car, it's worth 10 grand. So that's 10,000 pounds. If you can just do that that's great but if you crash it three times we've got to find another three four grand which comes out of my budget which comes out of my bonus anyway so i phoned the office from the store and said um i'm really sorry but uh, uh, paul the guy getting the job i crashed my car he said, oh eden what have you done and i've been, only been there about two months and they went okay and he gave me a real rollicking down the phone and he went okay he said come down tomorrow we'll get you a new one and um he said but whatever you do don't do it again so I got on the car that, that the rescue company had loaned me <clears throat> uh, from crashing the car the night before. Went around the corner and crashed that. <laughs> Just literally minutes, put the phone down, said to my boss, Paul, no, I won't crash any more cars. Got the car, around the corner, bang. So I, <laughs> so I drove down to the office and to a Records, which is in Kings Road, and went in there and no one knew me because I'd only just started. You know, I didn't, they didn't even know my name. They didn't know I existed or some of this kid, you know, Eden Blackman, apparently as a rap, yeah, come in. So I went and got a bollocking from Paul and then went uh, to so see. What does that, so I'm interested, I mean, we're way off uh, finding out what, what it is about music, but I'm, I'm, I'm in now. I'm completely right. committed. Well, you just, How do you go from getting a bollocking about crashing the car and then where do you go in the bollocking scales? Right, so, so wait, so, it gets better. so I get a bollocking for crashing this car and um that's the first one and uh, they went eden you know you've got, you've got to drive carefully blah, 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 and all these kind of like conversations and i'm shitting myself because i know what i've got to say and he went right we've got to go and see so and so from the carpool now and i and i honestly thought i was going to meet like the devil and i walked in and he gave me a big full-on like loaded like you are a so-and-so and he went and he went absolutely roasting me and i went okay i've got i'm so really sorry john um but I crashed the other car last night and he went berserk. And Paul looked at me and went, have you got anything else you want to tell us, Wally? I said, yeah, I'm leaving. I've got a job for me, am I? And honestly, they were like, who the fuck are you? <laughs> <laughs> so my name was Mud. Oh my I mean, they all thought he's hilarious. They told me later, they were like, we'd never had one walk in yeah. and go, crash two cars in and notice it and get a, you know, a 33% pay increase and just go, I'm really sorry very naively and very they could tell i was worried but yeah. they, you know it was all the drama of putting it on me that i crashed cars it was you know smoking mirrors hoping they could frighten me not to do it again and um and then i would start work for emi spoken a lot about radio from a professional perspective yeah but now you have a radio show yeah and that was simply um that 
uh, Eddie Temple Morris, who's, who's, who's a, a loved, loved friend of mine. I've known Eddie for years. Um, who he was, he was my drummer in my air guitar band that we put together when we entered the air guitar championships in. I can't remember what it was. It was 2001, because I was, yeah, it was 2000, 2001. Um, and Eddie's a beautiful man. And uh, he called me up uh, about 18 months ago and said, I've got, a, I can't, he's got a show at Soho Radio. Um, something, I think he was going away, but I'm, so I'm trying to like fill it with people I know. He said, no, I wondered if you'd do it. And I was like, yeah, I'd love to. First thing, what I always do is agree to things before I think about, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. And I was like, oh. And then I said, oh, Jesus. And he went, I oh, can play it all you want, you can swear. So that's two things in my favour that I'm good at. Um, and he said, you know, just, you know, it's not a huge audience, but you'll, they'll love you. They really will. And I was like, okay. So I really worked. Not that I don't work on a hot hard on all the shows, but I really, it was Christmas. So I went for all my CD collection and tried to sort of bring, and I just thought, um, I'll try and do it as an all back to mine thing. So it was just kind of the start, of, funnily enough, the first record I played was, Side A of If You Want Blood, You've Got It, uh, not Side B. Uh, and it was Riff Raff, ACDC. Um, and it's just, I think it's a great record, it's a great opener of a thing. And then I played all sorts of stuff, actually. I played some Van Halen, I played some uh, Jeff Buckley, who I'm obsessed with. I don't think I played Father John Misty then. Um, all sorts, I mean, Nine Inch Nails, uh, James Addiction, uh, yeah, I mean, all kind of like, you know, lots of stuff, and then some feet of the house gap, uh, the, the Ronnie Size remix of Basement Jack's Fly Life, um, which is a record that I worked and loved, Classic. yeah, and it was just like, was... Oh, what an amazing record, and it was just like two hours, and I really enjoyed it, a couple of drinks before, a couple of drinks during, and really enjoyed it, and then, um, and then he said, listen, I'm, I'm thinking of, of doing, he does every week, and he said, I'm thinking of splitting the remix up. Uh, which is 10 to 12 on a Friday, to, to, to having a few people do it. He said, would you fancy doing it full time? In a sense, I do it once a month. And I just, I've, I've done about six or seven. And, and I, I I get very nervous. I get very anxious about it because um, I'm still learning. And, um, but I, I enjoy it. And I try not to think, I kind of talk to, I don't, in the same way when I, when I do, or when I do TV, I don't really think about the audience when I do a live show or like this morning or Sunday brunch, I'm not thinking about, oh my God, there are X amount of people listening or, or watching particularly, because there's nowhere near the amount of people that listen to that radio that, that watch this morning. But I think that's the key. It's just like having a sort of having a conversation with yourself or as, the, as we're doing, imagine that we're just having a conversation with one and I'll ramble on about bands that I'd love or discovered. And, you know, there's a couple of bands that I've turned um, listeners onto that I've, that I've discovered. Um, last couple of years I've got, that I love I, I'm desperate one of my favourite bands is a band called Russian Circles and I go and see them every time and they're playing this well playing on the 16th of May and it's the same night as Arena Montaigne plays and I'm going to both nights of Arena Montaigne I'm just of all the, of all the nights you know but um, two very different bands there I mean Arena Montaigne playing that's an acoustic set um, and uh, Russian Circles that just play records that, that pin your face against the wall incredible band no, three piece bass guitar and drums no vocals um, amazing
Um, but they're kind of just, just stuff I play, and I, I, I try and play stuff that, when I hear, excites me, um, and maybe stuff that I haven't heard before. Um, and then I'll play old tracks. I always play an old track because I, I, I think there's so many records that got missed. And I remember the first show I did was I played, I said, I said on Mike, I said, it's, you know, I got to thinking this is probably the first and last time I'll do the show. So I thought well, maybe I'll play my favourite one hit wonder. And it was Space Hog in the meantime, because which I thought was an amazing record when it came out. And I just sort of played records from like 20, 30 years ago. Sure. But you do go, God, do you know that record is 30 years old? Yeah. I heard Plush for the first time and thought it was incredible. Went to see him a bunch of times. Oh, you went to see him? Yeah. Yeah, I saw him a few times. I missed out on all the great Oh, in fact, I've got a real, a, 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 an absolute true story that you'll love. Um, they were playing Brixton on the same night, and this will show you how long ago it was, um, that Arsenal were playing Leeds at Arsenal. And I, as a Leeds fan, used to go to all the Leeds, all the Leeds London matches, you know, because we were, we were able to see Chelsea and Spurs and Arsenal, and you know, there's a whole bunch of teams you go and see. But on the same night, Stone Temple Pilots playing, I went, I'm going to Stone Temple Pilots, you know, with respect and see Leeds whenever the sure. band very rarely play. And um, so my, my Leeds mates were like, oh, okay, fine, so blah, blah, blah. <laughs> all right, it's you gone. Um, and I'm stood there with my then girlfriend and I've got a Nokia phone and I've got, I get the results text me. And um, we're like, I think it's one one at some point. And um, they, Stone Empires are going through their kind of thing and then they kind of take their instruments off and pull two, four, four stools to the front and, um, and kind of go into this acoustic mode. And, um, Scott Whelan, obviously, is no longer with us and had his, you know, huge demons and issues. Mm. Was going through this sort of ramble about, you know, a, point, a particular part of his life where, you know, probably drugs and alcohol were really prevalent. And something disastrous happened. And just as he said that, my phone blinked, and we just scored in the last minute. And I went, yes! About <laughs> <laughs> fifty people looked at me like. <laughs> I could just like, you know, shat through their doorstep. They were just like, how disgusting. And I wanted to go, I, I, it's the lead to his up, but I thought I'd just yeah. stare it out. Yeah. But I loved them. And then, and then obviously when he went on to do Velvet Revolver, I went to see them a bunch of times. And um, I was really, uh, really sad when, you know, we, we, I think we, in terms of all the fans, knew that he was going to probably leave us earlier than sure. he should have. Um, 
but those first two albums were incredible. I mean, really great. And that second album was just, I mean, Vaseline and like, you know, kitchenware and all. I mean, just a great, just an alternative to that, that, that slightly pure grunge sound that was going on. They were kind of like a dirty rock grunge record. And they had a, they had, I me mean, particularly Scott, they just had this swagger. You know, he would come on in like a pair of like PVC trousers, a vest and like a German marching hat and looking anything above eight stone would have been amazing, would have been, would have been complimentary with a cane and black eyeliner and just smashed it. Do you think there's anything that links all the music that we've spoken about that you love together? Is there any kind of defining threads that run through them, anything like that? Um, I mean, to me, this is selfish, they're just records that I love. It's just a kind of like, there is, it isn't case in black and white and night and day. They're just records that I love and that have excited me, that I've heard them and something inside me has, has, has set a light, it's called fire. For me, they're all good records. For me, they've excited me and, and, and a bit like the show, majority of them are something that I've never heard before. And I think that's the, that's the first step into, into some really long love affairs I've got with bands. And it is, it is a love affair because, you know, you, 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 you invest in them and, and you listen to them and you try and work out, you know, it's, it, it's, it's definitely a love thing. And as with some relationships, some of them sour and some of them continue. And I think that's why you, there are bands and artists that you listen to that you will listen to for the rest of your life. Probably mine will be definitely Jeff Buckley. I've been listening to since 1994. Without a doubt, Rayla Montaigne, Father John Misty, I hope will still be making records in 10, 15 years time. Yeah, it will be amazing. Yeah, yeah, I'm done. Um, and then there's bands that I've, that I've loved before and, and then if I see them tour, I, I won't think about getting a ticket at all. But it's just, yeah, it's a love affair, I think. Interesting. Cool. Well, there's a thousand things more we can speak about, but I think we'll call it now. Thank you, man, it's been great. Excellent, thanks, mate. So empty, so Eden Blackman there. Many thanks to Eden for his time. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. We really could have gone on for hours longer and we'll have to do a part two in the near future. But for now, that's the end of episode nine of Threadwork. Thank you so much for listening. And look out for the unedited conversation next week as a bonus pod. But until then, I've been Ross Kale. Huge thanks as always to producer Bod for Technical Wizardry. And we'll see you in a fortnight's time for Threadwork episode 10. Look after yourselves. Cheers.